why are Americans so in love with royalty? And how dangerous is that to democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Surely everyone hearing this has seen pictures of the Trump residence in Manhattan. It's an incredibly excessive and, frankly, tacky and tasteless display of gold color covering virtually everything. It all seems to drip gold. They did that on purpose, like like a fairy tale display of splendor we can imagine in palaces and castles. And I think that's the point. That may convince the Trump family and their admirers that they are American royalty. And of course, the worshipful flags, the billboards, the posters uh, that we saw January 6th and other times reflect a psychological desire for royalty by his true believers. And that's what we're going to talk about, royalty and the attraction of royalty. What is it about the longing for royalty and celebrity that supersedes actual positions on political issues in America? The examples of governmental leaders staging their appearances to connect with and inspire a seemingly basic human desire for royalty are frankly pervasive and quite notable. We remember back in the early 30s, the infamous Triumph of the Will movie, in which out of the incredible, near hopeless desperation of the German people, a savior, one Hitler, comes down from the skies to rescue them and lead them to their deserved greatness a gift from the gods. And in 2015, Donald Trump famously gave us that image of him being delivered to us on a gold escalator down to rescue his people from the troubles of democracy as another gift from God. And we Americans are often worshipful and fascinated by every little action of celebrities, as if they too royalty, the Hollywood celebrities, the Hollywood royalty. Many run for elective office as that royal celebrity, and oftentimes they win just because of that. But if I remember correctly, and sometimes I do, America was founded out of fierce resistance to royal rule. So what is this widespread and possibly growing longing for leaders who are not chosen by we the people, but are somehow handed down through inheritance or mere star quality. We here in America have elections, of course, but we also recently witnessed the intensity of the pageantry surrounding the passing of our British Queen. And I say our on purpose. Well, not technically accurate. During the many days of the funeral, there was an unmistakable reverence for this great queen, somehow above human frailties in politics. A deep reverence was evident. Today, we're going to look at this curiosity of our obsession with royalty. Our guest is Suzanne Schneider, Deputy Director and Core Faculty uh, at uh, Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. She's also author of Mandatory Separation, Religion, Education, and Mass Politics in Palestine, and The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. She wrote a stimulating essay, which we're going to talk about in The New Republic, titled, Obstensibly, The Royal Family is Apolitical, 
That's why Americans are obsessed with it. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're somewhere in the United Kingdom right now, the politically suffering United Kingdom. Let's start by explaining the subtitle of your article. The monarchy offers a comforting fantasy of power without politics. What is it about politics that is so disturbing and uncomfortable that makes royalty so attractive to Americans? Well, thank you, Bert, for uh, inviting me on to, to talk about this. Yes, I'm kind of stationed on the ground. I joke as a local British correspondent right now, um, kind of witnessing this uh, really a very tumultuous period in, uh, in British history. Um, in terms of the subtitle that you've mentioned here and the notion of power without politics, there's a bunch of different ways that we could get into this, and some of them are historical and some of them are, let's say, theoretical. I will actually point us even beyond those two to one that's theological, because I think that you really can't understand the appeal of the monarchy, the way that monarchs continue to function, and the hold that they have over our imaginations in a purely secular realm. Um, I think that our the tools of what is sometimes called political theology can be very, very helpful to understanding the type of power that monarchs are said to wield. Like, how could it be that a person is apolitical? Like, what kind of image is that uh, of a person who is not kind of guided by some by their own interests, but will be purely disinterested and thus able to rule, you know, solely in the, the public interest or the public good? I would say that such a human being has never existed, mm. that it is probably def definitionally impossible for such a human being to exist. But that idea does correspond to this notion of like a divine sovereign who creates a system of laws, uh, supervises the, the, the kind of tumult of the subjects, um, you know, below the divine rule without necessarily interfering. But always with the sense that they have, you know, the, the interest of the, you know, of, of the creation in mind and that there's no other sort of like, um, you know, there's no self-interested um, uh, uh, kind of um, mm -hmm. like agenda that's guiding this. So I think that you know, when you start to think about how is it, what does it mean to have power without politics? What type of power is that? Um, it, it strikes me that it is still very much rooted in a particular political theological tradition that would posit, um, right, some sort of divine figure that is more than us, that is, right? And we can we'll yes. kind of get into how this has kind of uh, expressed itself, you know, over, over the centuries in, you know, different traditions. But I think that that is very much kind of front and center. Um, the second thing that I would mention is that, you know, we live in this era of depoliticization. And what exactly do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. I mean that neoliberalism has this kind of broad approach to the state, to markets, to govern, which has kind of remade um, societies in the West since the late 70s and early 80s, kind of champions this notion that as many of our aspects of human behavior as possible will get moved out into the marketplace and be subject to market forces and thus not be the like not be subject to real like political contestations over what type of society do we want, what types of conditions do we want to prevail. That right, the invisible hand is supposed to magically right. allocate resources in the most just and worthy way. And who are we to kind of interfere in its, you know, in in in, in its wisdom uh, and its kind of just allocation of desserts? And so, part of this, I think, is right. We kind of the broad. I think the broad outlines of that um, are really understood very well. But I would draw people's attention to the fact that that project is fundamentally anti-democratic, like small d democratic, mm -hmm. because what it does is it asserts that politics is no longer a space of uh, like substantive contest over 
what, you know, what, what is a good life? What should that look like? Who should that be available to? But kind of, you know, continually punting these questions to be resolved somehow magically by market forces. Um, and that what you're left instead with is these kind of like technocratic elite, like, you know, tweaks, or we can call them like the politics of nudges, which kind of really becomes pervasive during the same period, um, both within, you know, not, not just in private, but certainly even in the public sector as well, where, you know, we, it's like all we've got is we've got hacks and technocratic fixes, but we don't really have a kind of substantive acknowledgement that the issues we're talking about, they can't just be fixed by hacks or, or, or nudges. They're questions of policy. They're questions of priority. They're questions of politics. They're questions of contestation. And that requires a really, really kind of like robust democratic politics, participatory democracy of a sort that we simply don't have because like we have democracy where people vote every, you know, two to four years for representatives that they mostly assume will not, you know, do much in their, in their actual interests. Mm. It's a very hollowed out shell of democracy. And I think that it leads to this, you know, kind of all of these dynamics together kind of um, point to this era of depoliticization and then the kind of subsequent fantasy of a ruler who's somehow above the fray, who's somehow outside of this mess, and who can kind of, you know, look down from high right. and guide us through it. Fascinating. Troubling, I must say. And uh, they... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm a bundle of great news. <laughs> <laughs> well, these days, there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> and and I, I do find it fascinating that people don't want to think about it. It's too much trouble to to actually participate in decision making a democracy enables us we the people to participate in our own self-governments but but believing in the market forces the invisible hand a lot of people believe that well get the government out of it just let the market do its thing and everything will be fine and royalty fits in nicely with that. It just sort of confirms that. I hadn't thought of that before. Fascinating. It, it kind of it leaves us with this very truncated view of like what freedom is. Mm-hmm. Where freedom is essentially just it's just it's just consumer choice. So like you're free right. to choose X or you're free to choose Y, but like you're not free to like fundamentally rethink the premises of the system or you know, to think about, like, maybe I want a different option altogether. Maybe I want option J. Um, I try to be somewhat generous when I'm you know, thinking about people and their real experiences as to why people seem either disenchanted, um, uninvolved, kind of uh, unwilling to, you know, to give kind of these types of, like, we're in a robust political participation, their time and their energy. Um, and I don't think it's just a product of, like, oh, the people are lazy or stupid or they're just disinterested or any, anything like that. Um, I, I think that, right, we've had a remarkable decline really from the 60s onward in, you know, people's faith in government as a effective tool, as a trustworthy, you know, institution. Um, and, you know, a kind of sense that it really doesn't matter in, in a lot of substantive ways, which of these two fools I choose. Um, and that's a crisis of democratic governance. That's a crisis of a, a government that doesn't actually respond to its people's needs, such that it's always making these appeals to democracy as like a faith-based creed mm. without actually delivering any good. And so, you know, I think we have to be also kind of generous and think about, well, why would people feel so disenchanted? Why would people feel so kind of uh, apart from or disgusted even by the kind of nature of American politics such that they would long for this different type of model. And it does seem to me that over the past 50, 60 years or so, the Republican Party has very wisely, as it turns out, focused on defunding public education because 
Mm-hmm. I think they knew that an uneducated public, the less you, you educate them, the less people, individuals feel empowered. And so if you're not empowered, just like, oh, so I don't know anything about this. The, this guy over here, this woman knows a lot more than I do. I'll just, I'll just trust him or her and the forces of the marketplace. And, you know, look, when they go into a supermarket, they don't ask you know, generally for other things to be on the shelves, it's like, this is what we're given. We take it. That's all there is. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and the, you know, the, the other piece of this with, you know, something like, you know, the kind of systematic underfunding, certainly mm-hmm. at the federal level um, and at state levels as well of, you know, of various kind of aspects of like, you know, of social services and social goods from education to the failure to develop any sort of national health care system to, you know, no, no, not having any sort of like publicly funded child care. Um, at, right. a, at a kind of mass level, right? All, all, all of these things, just kind of all of these, like, um, you know, kind of the classic characteristics of a, a social welfare and social democracy that state that are just, you know, notoriously absent in the United States. When you have something like education, it also, it, it's kind of so sick because it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you underfund public schools yeah. and then public schools are not shown to be performing, right. then all you can do is say, well, look at these schools, they're not performing. Clearly we need to move our funds to vouchers or to, you know, charter schools or all of these kind of, you know, different schemes that have been put forth. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you systematically underfund the public service and then claim that the private sector will do it better. Yeah, of course. And the queen, let's face it, she was amazing. 70 years on the throne. She kept that British stiff upper lip, the confidence. I mean, just through all these incredible crises, through that Annas Haribles of uh, a number of years ago. She was loved, mm-hmm. loved, and adored by so many. She didn't have real power. I mean, there's there's a separation of powers, I believe, in the uh, United Kingdom. There's head of state, which she was, mm-hmm. and now we have King Charles III. He's the, the head of state. And then you have head of government. So I wonder about... Sometimes that attracts me, you know, if we could have a, a, a celebrity, a Ronald Reagan type, you know, somebody who, who looks good, you know, high, riding high on the horse, but it doesn't have any political power, but just kind of personifies the, the, the spirit of the people. And then some schlub like uh, Walter Mondale, who didn't have that kind of, you know, charisma to just run the government. Uh, you know, and they have yet an, yet another uh, uh, head of government in, in the UK. I can't keep up with them all. But what about that? Yes, no, we're on number three since we've arrived. Right. Is there something to be said for that, given how so many people really don't want to, you know, think about it and are just like, oh, yeah, the Queen's fine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say, as you remember Paul McCartney yeah. saying. But, and, and, and just, you know, something about that that system that maybe maybe is is would it be better rather than you know having to have a a a president here who is both head of state and head of government that's a tough you know to be a, a celebrity to be a star and to be capable of of running the government mm-hmm. and keeping a democracy functioning what about uh, that i mean it's not going to happen here but what do you think about that <laughs> I think a bunch of things about it. I'll try to organize them in somewhat cogent fashion. Please. The first is that, it, right, there is certainly this role that the Queen played as a kind of a sense of a, a uniter, and particularly in the, uh, you know, a kind of like something that could kind of glue together British mm-hmm. identity, in, in, at least in theory, right? 
Um, right. In practice, this doesn't actually work. Like, mm. you know, people who tend to be the ones who are most heartbroken about the Queen's death are don't happen to be the people who stem from, say, former British colonies. Um, right. <laughs> For of, sure. You know, <laughs> uh, and really, and, you know, the post-colonial Twitter was on fire. I will shout out to that um, uh, in the kind of days following her death. And I think that it kind of goes beyond her like personal traits, right? I'm always trying to push people to think a little bit more in structural or systemic terms. Like, did she seem like a perfectly nice lady? Sure. Would I have like gone over and had tea with her if I had, had I received an invitation? Absolutely. Yeah. Do I think the monarchy should exist? No, no, no. So like, why is that? Well, I think, um, right, the, the structure of the monarchy is one which at its core legitimates a just vast and hereditary inequality. Like that there is, by birth, there are certain people who are more than any of us, that deserve more than any of us, mm. right, that are funded on, on the taxpayer's dime uh, oh, to yeah. the tune of about, I think, $102 million um, pounds uh, in, you know, 2020, 2021, 2021, that's what I'm saying here, right? This is a lot of money for a country yeah. facing a, um, you know, a, and, and this uh, real, you know, cost of living um, crisis and kind of really, like, is a almost like a, a, a downgrading economy in, in so many respects after Brexit, right? And you're not yes. even counting in that number. Like this, like like literally, like we talk. I talk a little bit about my academic work about this idea of neo feudalism. We still have like the OG feudalism here, right? With these, not with these titles comes these estates of you know 50, 60 million pounds generated in you know annual income. It's it's you know you still have like you know the genuine like a kind of like feudal condition here in some ways. So how do we justify this in a modern age? Um, and I think that one reason that Americans are, not only are they not offended by this, but they tend to even like think there's something in the grandeur in it. And right, the language is very, very um, uh, important that people use to talk about this. And particularly, you know, in the days following your death, you heard constantly about the majesty the, the you know the um the, the the magic right Stephen Miller kind of had this great tweet about the magic of the monarchy right and the tradition the aura of it like we're always reaching for this like transcendental language <laughs> which again I will you know encourage people to think back to what I said about kind of political theology you know earlier um uh, earlier on um but and I think right I I have a very cynical read of that kind of idea that this level of inequality is necessary, right? The kind of um, insane measures that, you know, they went to during, you know, the day of her funeral, like closing food banks, right? Closing schools, like, all, you know, medical treatment. It's, it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's completely oh bananas. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry right? to laugh, but it's and like, like, what? Go ahead. <laughs> Yes, like what purpose does this serve? Right. And like how should we think about that in a period of our own just kind of massive gaping inequality? Uh, that right? They were like, Yes, well of course this billionaire deserves like to have, you know, his like seventeen yachts because he worked hard for it. Yeah, right. Um so I can't think about the like, right, because it's, it's no more rational to me that these, you know, people born into this royal family deserve this. Right by right by kind of birthright yeah. than it is that you know people like Elon Musk are walking around with all the money that they have. So it's you know and and so I would kind of encourage people to think about those things together about these are different forms of inequality, um, and that what we are doing when we're kind of venerating 
the monarchy is we are also legitimating these, you know, these forms of inequality. And I think they're kind of in conversation with one another, not um, in an interesting way. Well, you talk, uh, and for those who may have just tuned in, uh, we're talking about a lot of stuff here. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Suzanne Schneider, Deputy Director, Core Facility at Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. She's somewhere in the uh, formerly Great Britain, uh, and she's written an article. In, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. In the New Republic, titled "Ostensibly the Royal Family is Apolitical," that's why Americans are obsessed with it. And I, yes, uh, the the royalty gets uh, paid a lot of income. Now I understand Rishi Sunak, the new Prime Minister, uh, is wealthier than King Charles. And mm-hmm. and, and I, yeah. I suppose that you know like. Well, we got one person super wealthy and, and the other. It's just like, yeah, there's going to be super wealthy people on top of it. So, you know, close down the food banks. You're just not as, as important as <laughs> the the super rich, the prime minister, the hyper rich. And we get that impression here, quite frankly, that, uh, you know, they're supposed to be venerated. I mean, these people who have $200 billion, I'm sorry, but... I have a problem with that. If you can't be satisfied with, say, yeah. fifty million or even a hundred million, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's not exactly take it away. I'm, I'm sorry, just take it away from them. So we built the middle class. Just take it away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> On the record, ninety ninety percent tax rate. Let's go. Well, I I'm I'm so old. I remember when we had a middle class here in America. Really, really, it really did actually. Um, and and you say you also write. Perhaps we Americans are envious that the British have something as historically sturdy as the divine right of kings. <laughs> Say more about that, please. Yes. Well, it's a little tongue-in-cheek because, right, in, 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 in truth, right, the, well, 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 first let's talk about what the thing is itself. So the divine right of kings refers to a, like, specifically Christian theological doctrine uh, that's meant to legitimate uh, monarchies through reference to the idea that rulers are chosen by God and they are kind of, um, you know, appointed, uh, you know, to their positions of powers by divine authority. Um, the kind of as a consequence of this, of course, they're not accountable to earthly authority. There's many instances of, um, you know, you know, various kings claiming this, this right, this kind of divine, divine prerogative and using it as a, a way to overcome objections of the aristocracy uh, aristocrats or, you know, kind of parliaments or any, any, any number of kind of other kind of claimants on, um, uh, you know, uh, within a polity and saying, no, 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 I don't get my legitimacy from you. My legitimacy is not derived from the people. Uh-huh. It's not derived from some sort of social contract. My legitimacy is derived from above. That's why I have this, 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 this role. God wouldn't have chosen me for this role. I, I would have been put here and born into this family if I hadn't been chosen to rule. So, Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of where this comes, in terms of where this comes from, right? It's kind of, you know, there's a bunch of different theological traditions that you can trace this into in, in, in terms of source text. So, in the Book of Samuel, you have the idea of uh, the Davidic line, this kind of, you know, appointed uh, and, and the anointed ones, um, and you have kind of shades of this still actually in, in in various kind of coronation ceremonies where the monarchs are like anointed by the you know, Archbishop of Canterbury um, in this way that kind of is, is meant to mirror this, this, this kind of, you know, Davidic anointing and that got picked up in the meantime by the Holy Roman, Holy Roman emperors. So you have this, um, you know, sense of, of, of being appointed and anointed by kind of mm-hmm. divine right. 
um, in kind of Protestant, uh, you know, it, it, it both exists in Protestant and kind of Catholic varieties. Um, Martin Luther um, really leaning heavily on kind of uh, St. Paul and the kind of Pauline theology, um, you know, kind of articulates this quite strongly in his kind of treatise on government authority, that leaders are cho- chosen by God, they're put on earth to restrain the wicked. Uh, they won't necessarily be good themselves, but you still have to obey them. Um, and it is kind of... <laughs> It creates a, um, you know, it is a very strong theoretical um, basis for kind of absolute monarchies, you know, in the, you know, you know, 14th through the 17th centuries. Um, and in England, it's largely thought that this kind of divine right of kings uh, comes, uh, meets its demise with the Glorious Revolution in 1688 and 1699. That kind of really is the thing that kind of creates the modern monarchy by pulling back their power um, and elevating the kind of, you know, power of parliament. But, so all of that is true. So we don't, but, but it's still, it's still the re, like this institution is the same institution in many ways, even if their power is kind of constrained. Like we, they didn't do away with the institution, um, and you know you still it is basically one big intertwined family tree, um, you know leading from the House of Stuart uh, down to today, and right and it's and all of these kind of principles of you know the, that you're that you're born into it, the kind of hereditary aspect of it, it's. Like, none of this makes sense outside of some sort of, like, theological, like, register. But it, it, it's just so much easier than thinking. I mean, democracy, let's face it, it's tedious. It takes a lot of work to pay attention to economics and foreign policy uh, and the environment. And just, oh, let let the, the king or the queen do it. They have a, a divine right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so much easier than thinking. But... <laughs> We had not so much a revolution. We had a war of independence. Was it really a revolution? Uh, highly debatable. But there was a war of independence uh, to get away and to, at least in theory, uh, do away with with royal rule and have an actual democracy. But, uh, boy, that seems to have fallen by the wayside quite a bit. And, and one of the things about the queen and others is spectacle we like spectacle yeah what what gets on tv spectacle it's not so much issues the candidates positions on the issues but what i mean tv stations make their money from advertisers they want to keep advertisers happy how do they keep advertisers happy they get more eyes on the screen how do you do that spectacle well the trumpers <laughs> rely on spectacle. They have a lot of spectacle. And even with uh, that uh, bizarre character, Herschel Walker, down in, in Georgia here, uh, in the, yeah. it, 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 it gets eyes on the screen. You know, visuals, aggressive attacks on others. The Queen provided lots of spectacles, which served to be reassuring uh, to the wider public. What about that that role of spectacle in what is otherwise, at least in theory, a democracy? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a great point, and I, I mean, I think that you you know hit it kind of right on the head, though, in that like right all of the the spectacle exists within a media ecosystem which is bounded by the rules of capitalism. Um, and so what are you always trying to do? Yes, you're always trying to attract eyeballs. You're always kind of vying for advertising dollars. Um, and that you, so you, 
So I would say that actually we have to understand this politics of spectacle, not as something that uh, is, exists in the same form, you know, over time and space. And we've always had political spectacles of, of, of varying sorts, right? Back from back to ancient, you know, Egyptian Babylonian kings down to the present. That I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the, the political spectacles invented in the, in the 20th century, no. uh, certainly not. But, <laughs> but I think mass media and mass politics kind of does change the nature of these spectacles. Um, and that it's, right, it's just, it, like, it's impossible to think about, right, think about just like, you know, like the, all of the, you, what are you, you know, you're, 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 there's a royal wedding on and there's like right. 700 million people watching it around the world. And then you go to the news, you're, you're checking out at the grocery store and it's on the front of like every tabloid, right? Like these are material things that, and technological advances often changes in, you know, communication technologies, changes in, um, you know, print media, uh, so on and so forth, and uh, that actually change our, the way that we feel. Uh-huh. Our affective state are not stable over time. They're responsive to these kind of material shifts. You just can't have a population in the United States that's like enamored with the queen before this age of mass media. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, it really, it really doesn't work. Um, so I would kind of point out to the fact that, you know, this is also a kind of, in addition, I think, to kind of being wrapped up in those um, the, the depoliticizing trends uh, of the neoliberal turn that I've, that I've spoken about, I mean, this is kind of also wrapped up in our kind of media and technological changes, yeah. the creation of new media that enable us to like actually monitor this stuff and feel some sort of, you know, affection or kind of condensed distance to these, you know, these, these activities happening across the pond. Um, <laughs> so definitely you know, encourage people to think about that. And finally, on spectacle, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, you know, I, 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 a lot of my work actually comes on political spectacles um, and particularly around violence. So mm. I've written, you know, a, a book about the Islamic State, ISIS. I've again, written, you know, it's about the kind of January 6th uh, uh, insurrectionists also kind of thinking kind of uh, with through this lens of spectacle. Um, and there's this kind of great bit by the German Jewish uh, theorist and literary critic Walter Benjamin that right, that kind of spectacle and this kind of what he calls like an aestheticization of politics, ah. which is you know that you want to talk about like you know fascism. That this is what it really, uh, um, this is what it really kind of aims at more um, in the in, in lieu of actually having mass politics that are participatory and democratic. Right, fascism gives people like spectacle uh, instead of their rights. So it's kind of like a a, a there's an aesthetic mode here which through spectacle, it gives masses a sense of excitement, uh, a sense of kind of, you know, agency and involvement and, and, and kind of a robust sense of participation in a system that is fundamentally authoritarian and anti-democratic. Um, and, and that the spectacles actually serve this role. So, like, it's, it's, it's not just that, you know, we know that this is bound up in right capital media, all, all, all of that jazz is true, but that I'd also, you know, encourage people to think about, like, what else is this doing? Why do we want a politics of spectacle? Um, what is this distracting us from asking for instead? Oh, fascinating stuff and a lot to think about. And you think about spectacles uh, over the years. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, Suzanne Schneider, who's written an article in The New Republic uh, titled, Ostensibly, The Royal Family is Apolitical. That's why 
Americans are obsessed with it. And I, I'm remembering, you know, you think about at the checkout uh, counter at, at, at grocery stores, the, the tabloids, they love that kind of spectacle stuff, you know, from from Hollywood celebrities, just, you know, gossip and things like that. Yeah. That's what people love to focus on. It's so much easier. And in the process of of of, of grabbing that attention, it takes attention from actual things we can do as participating citizens. And and to me that's kind of scary. And I think about the various different spectacles, the image of uh, uh, Benito Mussolini uh, looking strong, mm-hmm. looking tough. What what he did, I, I, you didn't have to know what he stood for to see that image to unite people and to sort of exemplify and personify, you know, the the uh, the uh, hope for a, a return of, of Roman culture and the, and the the whole, you know, the Roman Empire dominating the yeah. world. Uh, fascinating stuff, and it, it hasn't, hasn't done a lot of good. It's done a lot of bad. But FDR was a, a, yeah. a, a brilliant politician, a, an incredibly good president, in my opinion. I could criticize him for a few yeah. things, like not getting involved in Spain. But anyway, he was very sympathetic to the plight of England uh, before, you know, in the Second World War. Uh, they got into the war in 1939. We didn't get in until 1941 which took some heavy lifting yep. on his part. He got the queen he, brilliantly, brilliantly. He got the queen and King George VI to come to his home in Hyde Park. Interesting use of spectacle there. What was the significance of that <laughs> as spectacle to move public opinion? Your thoughts? It's very fascinating. And in many ways, it's like the, it's the kind of counterexample that should really point that something is like fundamentally different in American politics right now than it was when, you know, uh, uh, when, when George and Elizabeth, uh, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth's mother came to visit uh, the United States in 1939, right, where the attempt then was to make them seem as human as possible, uh-huh. as kind of down-to-earth American folk, right? Because, yes, we, you know, really through, I would say, the middle of the 20th century, there was a sort of um, anti-suspicion against kind of... the uh, you know, the aristocracy about the monarchy, nobility, all of this, in, you know, inherited kind of privilege that seemed to be so unearned. Um, and that was quite widespread in a, in a, in a society that was more egalitarian, um, uh, both in real terms and certainly, I think, in ideological terms. And so, you know, it, and I, it, this was great. I, I really appreciate that um, I learned about this actually only a, a kind of um, almost by accident over the summertime my one of my daughters is newly fascinated by Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, I love We went to visit. We went to Val Kill. Oh yes. If you go to Hyde Park, right? So you have in Hyde Park, you have the Roosevelt House and the Presidential Library, um, the kind of whole museum compound on one side of the road, and which is kind of you know much more grand, still less grand than the Vanderbilt down the road. Got to say, but you know, but more grand, kind of on the Hudson River, and then kind of on the other side of the road. You have Valkyl, which is kind of looks like basically like a little bit of a cottage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very striking if you go there because I did. The, the furniture, the everything. It's yes, yeah, yeah, so you know, it's so toned down. It's like this could be my grandmother's house. That would be you know the the vibe that it that that, that it gives. Yes. Um, and so the idea was that they would have them. Um, you know, not even to the 
um, is that they've had this picnic specifically at Valco. Oh, was it so, there? Like, the most toned down, yes, most modest. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, it wasn't even at the biggest stage. It was at Valco, right? And they're going to have a picnic and they're going to, you know, serve beer and hot dogs. And, and apparently, um, you know, there, there's this great, you know, guy told us that, you know, the king and queen both were like, how do you eat this thing? What do right. you do with this? You know, right. they're like, you just pick it up. <laughs> and then the king managed to just, they just pick it up in the bun, but the queen insisted on cutting it up with a fork and being uh, <laughs> very soft. <laughs> um, and, but that, right, like, so think about that example, though, where it's like, in order to build sympathy, for England, um, you know, in advance of this likely kind of, you know, uh, this likely disastrous war confrontation. Yes. What we need to do is make these people seem as like run of the mill right. and like ultimately ordinary as possible. And that is a thing that is going to make Americans feel some sort of like sympathy or, some, you know, some sort of like have some sort of stake in, you know, in, uh-huh. in, in, in their, in what the, what is going to be in for Great Britain and for Europe. Um, and you contrast that with today, where it's like the more over the top, the better, uh, right? So it's the gold and the glitz and the like 15 different guards and like, isn't this incredible, the majesty, the splendor, the magic, right? Like where it's all about the gap between what is afforded to the monarchy versus what is afforded to us, us kind of, you know, our, our, we mere mortals. Um, and I, I just see, you know, even just as two, like, um, as two bookends. In American, uh, um, in, in, in American kind of attitudes for the monarchy, I find these to be, you know, quite striking, uh, precisely because they differ so remarkably. Fascinating, and I, I, I'm remembering Nixon had his lovely palace guard to reinforce that yes, he he had a divine right of kings too, I guess. <laughs> didn't quite work for him. At least he eventually followed the law, but that's a diversion here. Uh, you, you write that by supposedly residing above the political fray, the monarchy unifies the people across partisan, ethnic, cultural, and religious lines. And, of course, that does so kind of... Claim. Huh? <laughs> So it is claimed. So it is claimed, and and you think the 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 people in the uh, huge British Empire uh, may not feel so unified by the uh, the royalty, but that's the way it is. And I do wonder now, one of the candidates running for U.S. Senate here, where this show is coming from in New Hampshire really plays up his military history. He wears a lot of military regalia in his TV ads, and it's like military, military, military. I wonder if this might be sort of part of the innate... Our version? Yeah, our version of it. Is that part of the innate attraction to royal spectacle? Your thoughts? Well, I think it it maybe functions a little bit differently. Um, This, well, two things. First of all, right, what people note that is, you know, that, that, that at a functional level, right, the monarchy stands for some sort of tradition, right, that it stands for something that people we will say, like, you know, it just, she's just been there my whole life, right? Like, it's a, it's a sturdy institution that seems to, you know, withstand all of the various governments, so on and so forth. Um, and so really what that is an argument for, though, is some sort of, like, traditional architecture, some sort of like mooring that people can kind of glom onto and associate with, not specifically the monarch. 
So there's no reason that if we like picked up the monarchy kind of model and like popped it down in the United States that it would ever work because it's actually not part of our tradition. It has no kind of you know roots um, in, in 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 this sense. So we have to, I think, on the one hand, kind of distinguish between the role of institutions that seem to be kind of like deeply rooted for offering some sense of stability on the one hand, mm-hmm. and the monarchy as a kind of particular instantiation of that, but you know certainly not the only one. Now, the kind of second part of the question with regard to the, the military and the appeals to kind of military performance and regalia, I think that these actually are are are, are a bit more sinister. That yeah. um, since the um, really, I'm, I'm, I've I've written about this kind of elsewhere, and I've uh, about in a piece on kind of American gun culture, is that really since the war on terror and the attacks of, of 9/11. You have this very, very clear kind of blurring of the boundaries between civilian, soldier, police, military, um, where these, you know, these categories all seem to be like the Venn diagram. They're just all kind of coming over such that citizens are, you know, kind of uh, taking it upon themselves, you know, to to basically act as vigilante justice, uh, you know, squads um, where (laughs) we've seen this kind of horrific effect. Um, in, in, in the United States, particularly, you know, going after people of color over the last several years by citizens who kind of deputize themselves to serve as law enforcement. Uh, if you look at the kind of um, trajectory of American gun advertising, you'll see that one of the most popular motifs for several years have been ads of people in military fatigues um, in kind of combat zones, you know, and, and right. And but these are these are appearing as, you know, these are this, are, this is for the civilian market. And the, but the association is that you can play soldier here, you know, in your backyard. Uh-huh. You don't have to go to Afghanistan, right? So there's this, <laughs> my father, my, and so you have this real, real, real blurring, I think, of, of, of these categories between, yes, the citizen, the soldier, um, the, you know, the police, um, you know, my, my, my father has his own fun idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic politics I've at least partially inherited. He always says, says that he knew that something was, a foot in the early nineties when he started to hear our local policemen in, in our little town that we grew up with in South Dakota start talking about people as the civilians and thinking about themselves as frankly not civilians, right? Uh-huh. Is is almost kind of casting themselves again in that kind of military language. Um I think that so this is all kind of like a little it's you know, there's a lot of debate about whether we should use the term fascist for these things. It's a little fashy, okay? It's you know I have to say it's all the way. But this kind of idea of, um, uh, of essentially violence being the premier mode of civic participation, which is what kind of all of these appeals to like military police, um, right? That's what they all kind of effectively suggest is that I am capable of violence. I am capable of order preserving violence. Uh, and, and that these, you know, candidates who are kind of tapping into that and kind of, yes, donning this regalia, it's not just that they're kind of trying to kind of tap into a, um, you know, a much older American kind of veneration for, for soldiers, for those who have served, but specifically that they're kind of playing on this, um, like confusion of categories that we've had, that we've had over, you know, the last few decades, um, where, you know, the, the citizens, the soldiers, the, you know, the police, military, all of these things kind of seem to be glomming into one little violent core. Indeed, and and over the past few years, ever since I, I think the the reaction, direct reaction after uh, the protests, when people actually tried to participate in foreign policy making back uh, during our war in, in Vietnam, 
the reaction to that is really uh, extreme. Sporting events, military, 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 flyovers, this reverence yeah. for all things military and and police. Uh, it's, you know, it's simpler that way. It's like, oh, reassuring, yeah, they're in charge. They know what they're doing. We're just yeah. the, the average person. We don't know what they're doing. And there's something about... This strikes me as exceedingly worrisome about their craving for that aspect of of some kind of yeah. royalty. It's it's deeply troubling. Well, well, you know, it's 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 a really kind of great point, and you know, it's kind of worth thinking about further because you do have people still who do express this idea that the military is this apolitical institution, right? It would be better to let the military run the show, right? Uh, because the military, they're they're so efficient, they're not partisan, they're right. They're, so maybe in some ways, right, the military is our royalty <laughs> in that um, in that kind of functional or structuralist way about this institution that is as American as apple pie um, yeah. uh, that is um, uh, and that, you know, does appear to so many people to be kind of, you know, somehow outside the fray of the power politics, which is, again, absurd. There's nothing more absurd than saying that state violence of whatever form is like apolitical. Like this is just a logical absurdity kind of, you know, to the max. Um, but, you know, the confidence in the military, I think, is still much, you know, it's, it's much higher than confidence yes. in civilian leaders. Yeah, it's it's really powerful these days. And I, I do find it very troubling. And if it weren't a, a reaction to... Uh, you know, there were the stories, largely false, almost exclusively false, about uh, soldiers and military people coming back from the war in Vietnam and being spit on. No one's ever sure if that happened. Yeah. This is a direct reaction to that perceived lack of, of respect for it. And it's, you know, the idea of having a democratic process involved in our foreign policy is very attractive to me. I'd like to see, you know, people yeah. be able to vote and participate in making foreign policy rather than having it all come down from on high. Yeah, or even, I mean, even con like, like literally something as basic as the right to wage war yes. is not something that's actually been in even congressional hands, you know, since the 1940s, which is the last time we declared war. Yeah. Um, all of these operations being, you know, conducted by executive operation, and kind of as I wrote about my last book, um, increasingly, you know, um, carried out by you know private military companies who don't have yes. the same level of scrutiny and are not subject to any sort of public oversight of the way that right Congress is. Like we're not even a year away from this kind of you know withdrawal in Afghanistan, um, or, or we're just just over a year away rather, and it's. You know, people forget that we had way more contractors in Afghanistan than we had even, you know, regular U.S. troops. So we're still finding ways of um, of, of conducting mm. war and foreign policy outside of the public purview. So there's the royalty. The, the other thing. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. One more thing I would add for this <clears throat> is that, uh, and it kind of gets into those, these, these very troubling um Again, like the glorif real is glorification of violence and kind of the wielders of violence as being the almost like the core of what it is to be an American is the right the veneration of police. Yes, I think it's even new in my lifetime. Like I'm not yet, you know, I'm 39 years old. I lived through the 90s when you know making fun of cops was just like a daily occurrence. Um, like this was a this you know absolute veneration of police. Um, in all, you know, all these kind of, uh, in, in, in both cultural forms, political ones, just everyday life, 
is something that is also seems to me kind of like to, to relate to like a post 9-11 moment um, where the kind of, you know, traditional veneration of military kind of comes back um, and uh, uh, is absorbed by kind of police and other first responders, largely on account, uh, I think, of the right actual heroism that many of them did show on that incredibly awful day, but that it kind of transforms, you know, into this, you know, real sense of, uh, of, 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 of police having just absolute rights that are way beyond, that are, you know, unaccount- that are completely unaccountable, um, you know, that they're um, really immune from public oversight, yeah. um, and that, you know, th- and that they are the real, you know, heroes constantly putting their lives on the line, right? How many cop shows do we have? How much propaganda do we have that suggests that really what police are doing all day is running around solving like felony murders. And we know from any number of great studies that this is like a key, like a teeny tiny fraction of police officers will ever be involved in such a case. And so many people get really offended if you dare criticize police. How dare you? I mean, they're uh, the reverence there. And you're right. I think there's some kind of psychological ease, maybe not need, but desire for, uh, you know, people who are powers that are above mere human capabilities. It's it's quite appalling, really, and uh, I'm not sure what we can do about it. Um, and the, the royal, you write that the uh, fact that the royals are celebrated for their inability to interfere in politics echoes our own demobilization in unca- uncanny ways, living with an almost overwhelming sense of futility in the face of crises. Does that mean we're more powerless, the, the more powerless average citizens feel, the greater the attraction to monarchy? Does this belief tend to reinforce the acceptance of citizen powerlessness? Yikes. Yeah, I, I, I mean, <laughs> probably. I think so. I think that, the right, again, the more that democracy is hollowed out as a Mm. substantive institution. Um, And the more that, right, it's like, it's like we're in this awful paradox and kind of a bind where we've been told for decades that we need to be individually responsible for our own lives, our own families, our, you know, uh, our own selves. um, And, and that, you know, our, everything's about like our individual, like uh, ethical and moral choices, but yet the crises that we face are so overwhelmingly and they're systemic and they're collective. So how so we we have this kind of complete mismatch between a language that will kind of always fall back on the individual as the kind of primary political and social actor mm-hmm. and the reality of these uh, material crises, which requires collective action. Um, and that can be extremely demobilizing and very disenchanting. And yes, and and in in those moments, of course, the kind of an idea of like a, a some sort of you know again, it's a, literally a divine figure. What you want is a messianic figure to come out of the ether, to right the ship, um, and to kind of uh, somehow be able to, you know, to, to kind of to, to turn things around in a way that seems outside of your capacity as mere mortals. Um, that figure, the figure's not coming. It has to just be us. That, that, that's all there is. And I think that that's like a very, you know, it's like a bitter pill to, to, to swallow, but there's like, right, there's the only way out is through. That's it. Wow. And, you know, I, I am foolish enough and naive enough to believe that well, democracy actually could be a good thing. And as difficult and cumbersome as it is and messy as all heck, uh, it's it's better than having it just handed to us coming down from the top 
and you know we've had these you know America's had it too there's been mm-hmm. the Kennedys the Bushes here in New Hampshire the Bushes the, yeah the Sununus there's the Marcos family in the Philippines they've come back to power uh, I, I, I wonder you know that, that just keeps going on and, and there's so many examples of people wanting to, to do that um, how worrisome is this as you say the mode of apolitical, in quotes, power embodies a potent ideological brew that is currently being sipped the world over, end of your quote. The, <laughs> the love and admiration that poured out of America during the Queen's funeral period, do you really think that, in your words, it testifies to something rotten at the core of the Republican project, which is, of course, in my opinion, the essence of Trumpism, uh, the the uh, you know the core well, Republican project uh, yeah. just rotting away. Go ahead. Well, well, I, I said I'll, I'll I'll just just to clarify on language. When I say something rotten at the core of the Republican project. I'm really I'm meaning small R Republic. Oh, of course, <laughs> like, yes, yes, a, yes. Not, <laughs> not, um, and that and 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 because of that, actually, the, the problem is you know predates Trump by by, by quite a long mm. by quite a long shot. Um, and is much broader than him. It won't be solved just by keeping him out of office, um, right. right? Because the, the, again, the problems are structural. It's not they're, mm-hmm. they're not personal. Right. Um, it's you have to ask why. What what are the conditions that have that per- currently prevail that make people attracted to this type of messaging, this type of uh, this type of you know yeah. form of political authority, um, and that you know kind of just getting back to almost where we started. That you know, we have seen this kind of profound period of depolicization on the one hand, and where people's lives are just substantively worse and substantively harder to navigate. And people do have less time or energy uh, or just bandwidth for kind of, mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, robust engagement with politics at whatever level you're talking about, because they're burnt out. They're like working yes. more for less. Like what? You know, you've been tried being a parent in this country. Like it's just, it's just absolutely bonkers that anyone has the bandwidth to engage in politics. And I, I like, I think that's a little bit purposeful, right? That that's like so we want to create conditions again for kind of a more robust participatory democracy. That does actually require structural changes that meet, that open up bandwidth, that open up kind of uh, and pathways for people to actually be involved in civic processes in ways that are you know, more, more than just kind of voting every, every two or four years. And so in this sense, it's, it's much bigger than Trumpism. It's much bigger oh, than yes. the Republican Party. This yeah. is something which is at the core, right, right? I, I place an enormous amount of blame on kind of mainstream Democratic Party who also decided that they should beat the party's capital um, and uh-huh. have, you know, left people without a much, much sense of a chance, much sense of a, of a choice between these two. Um, and I really, I don't, I don't know if how much that's, Appreciated is a real thing by uh, it's like a lot of you know pundits, particularly like liberal pundits, or you know that mm. it's that a lot of people really just don't see the difference because neither of these parties is actually giving them anything. <laughs> um, uh, and and I, I don't and I, I don't think I have some sort of like special crystal ball that I'm tapped right. into this. I think I just have the advantage of coming growing up in a kind of rural poor place in South Dakota and hearing this all the time. And seeing this all the time from people I still know, and it's it's just worth it's really you know worth kind of taking those voices seriously and saying like why sh- why why should they come out like what 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 is the thing that's actually going to compel them to to come out and to turn out? 
Well, I, one of the guests, I can't remember who a long time ago suggested that we as citizens think with history. The reality is, I mean, Bernie Sanders was very popular. Did the DNC like him and the, the uh, you know, the nope. people who want? No, they didn't like him at all. But you know what? There was still that strength there. There has been, if you look throughout American history, there have been movements of, uh, of the people who, who, you know, want to have an actual democracy, even economic democracy. Ooh, what a concept. So do you have... I hate to ask, but I will anyway. Any sense of optimism for what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like not a ton, but that like you know, <laughs> the hopelessness is just never an option. Right. So you have like a kind of you know, right? The kind of what the, the kind of famous um, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, because like there's just uh-huh. not really any other option. Um, I would definitely. Um, I, I think it's. You know, as we work to build a kind of true, robust, multiracial democracy, something that we've never really had in mm-hmm. this country that has to have an economic component to it. You can't build that thing in ideological terms alone. You can't compel people to feel a sense of solidarity and unity with one another while nothing about their lives actually changes. Um, and mm. they see kind of no material benefits of that. Um, and that the, and that I think that there's, there's all different sources. Um, and traditions of the left that are, you know, that, that are interesting come from first places that people could be tapping into. Some of them, right, and from and from unexpected sources, maybe, right. Some of this really comes from, like, right, from from this can come from religious. This can come from religious communities. Mm-hmm. It can be religious ideas mm-hmm. that are kind of repurposed. This can come from, you know, certainly a long history of, um, you know, emancipation and kind of abolition struggle for civil rights. For Black Americans, yes. this can come from Native communities. This can come from so many different places. Even right where I mentioned, you know, kind of growing up in South Dakota, right? There's a tradition of progressivism, of course, it's imperfect and flawed, but that goes back to right, like the you know American farmers in the Upper Midwest. Yep. Uh, right. I grew up in a town that had you know co-ops as a as a thing. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> this is taken for granted that you had a a rural electricity you know rural electricity co-op. That you had, you know, co-ops for for you know for various kind of you know for ag products and things like this. But this model is it's not foreign to people because actually it's been part of those societies for a very very long time. Um, so I you know would love p- people to not assume that you know uh, oh, oh oh voters these kind of mythical moderate voters oh they would never go for X Y or Z yeah. like no actually some of them are like actually going for those things right now as we speak. <laughs> they might not, right? Um, and 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 so I I don't know. I would just want people to want the left, especially, to be um, uh, to really be open to kind of all of these different avenues that you could actually speak to people about. You know, real real things that could change their lives that they'll see material benefits of, um, and that can compel uh, and and really encourage a form of solidarity. That is, you know, sorely needed and, and, and definitely absent. It's been done before. It really has. It, fascinating discussion. I really appreciate this. If people want to read uh, more of, of your articles, The New Republic, or is there something else on that internet thing you can point to? <laughs> well, I uh, referenced a few of them. The one that we uh, we just we talking about most is the one from the New Republic, right? Um, uh, which which they which they can find by you know using your your, your search engine of. That's right. I also kind of made reference to an older piece about American gun culture uh, that was for published um, by Mother Jones uh, a few oh. years ago. So if you're 
in, interested in the kind of fascistic realignment of uh, American life. And, you know, that's, that's your happy bedtime reading. <laughs> <laughs> Suzanne Schneider, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure, Bert. It is a heavy lift, but maybe it's possible. Thank you. If you like that discussion, subscribe. Don't miss a single show. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com.